This year, we are trekking through the book of Acts that records the Acts of the Apostles and the earliest church and all that goes there. We are all the way into chapter 5, and already we see what is a rhythm and pattern to Luke's account that's here in the book of Acts. He starts with an introduction that is the ascension of Jesus and the call to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, so that we are to bring the gospel and word and deed to every aspect of life and existence. And after this introduction, we see a pattern of the church together, and then the church in the world, and then the church together, and the church in the world, and back and forth. The end of chapter one, we see the church together, communing with God in prayer, and neither glamorizing the good old days nor fretting about past failures, they continually move forward. And then having been together, we see the church pictured out into the world at Pentecost and the dramatic demonstration of the divine intent for the gospel to be brought to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And then at the end of chapter 2, the church is together again, engaging in the means of grace, the word, sacrament, and prayer. And then chapter three, the church goes back out into the world with the healing of the beggar at the beautiful gate, after which comes the first persecution of the church in that political power play by the Sanhedrin. But then chapter four at the end, we see the church again together, worshiping God and stewarding their resources to care for one another who is in need, a picture very similar to the end of chapter two. The church together and the church in the world, the church together, the church in the world. It is important for us to remember and practice that pattern. If the church only spends time together, even doing the good things of worship and Bible study and prayer gatherings, fellowship, if the church only spends time together, we neglect our call to be witnesses ministering the gospel in the world. However, if the church is overly focused on going out to the world without being rooted together in Christ, we will lose the purpose for which we go into the world. We do not merely go out as others go out, but we go into the world to minister the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we must not neglect meeting together and worshiping together being strengthened in fellowship and equipping disciples, but neither can we neglect reaching out and sending out to the world as instruments in the Redeemer's hands. So chapter 5, following the episode with Ananias and Sapphira, shows the church together and back out into the world with the additional persecution from the world. Before we read that word, let's go before the author in prayer. Our God, you are a God who brings us to you. And you would bring us together that we might be nourished and strengthened by you. Particularly as you speak your word of truth into our lives. But you do this not just so that we will be edified, but so that we will then go out into the world in order to share the good news with others in our schools and workplaces, our community, within the relationships that you have given to us. And so we would pray now for your Holy Spirit to come, to bear witness to the reading and to the proclamation of your word. 
and so it is to that end that we pray for the one who will proclaim, for he is not worthy. But by your grace he is able, and so it is through Jesus Christ and him alone that we pray. Amen. Similar to chapter 3 with a miraculous healing and then the political power play to persecute, we come to Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. Listen again to God's perfect word. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out, Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this, report the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be someone, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. This passage begins with an introductory statement. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. The book of Acts doesn't record every account of this, but focuses on particular events from which comes the persecution. And so we should not think that Peter is the only one who's doing anything, but Luke focuses on Peter because he is out front in key moments of engagement with the world. And then verses 13 and 14 say something that sound contradictory at first. Verse 13, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Now that can't mean that no one else came to faith or became a part of the church, because the very next verse says, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So what's happening here is that the believers gathered together in Solomon's colonnade in the temple courts, but there were no curious onlookers hanging around. You were in or you were out. In fact, the word translated join them is a word that more literally means to glue together or to cement together. Because of what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira, there were no fakers. <laughs> there were no posers. Those who joined did so because of genuine faith, as those who were cemented together by a shared faith in Christ. The United States and Western culture in general enjoyed many years in which Christianity was the assumed position. Almost everyone called themselves a Christian and went to church, whether they were true believers or not. It was the cultural practice. What we've seen recently is more people who claim belief in other religions, and the largest rise is in those who claim no particular religious affiliation. Secular humanism is the default religion of the day. It's not usually called that by its adherents, but that's what it is. Christianity is in a place where it's not as highly regarded as it once was, at least locally. This may actually be a good thing. The hypocrisy that was seen in Christianity and in churches was a result of many who claimed faith but did not truly have the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling in their heart. They claimed to be Christians but did not truly place trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and were still spiritually dead. We read in Acts that the early church and early Christians were highly regarded by the people. Even the unbelieving world 
regarded Christians highly as they saw that there was something genuine, something different, and something good among them. And so verse 15 tells us, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets, laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. It's actually a great play on words in that verse. It's best captured by the King James Version, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And that word overshadow is the same as in Luke 1, where the angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's also in the description of the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, that while Jesus was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. We see the important truth that people ache for overshadowing from the Holy Spirit. It reminds us also of the woman who came seeking even to touch the edge of Jesus' cloak. Chapter 19, later we're going to see that those who touched Paul's handkerchief were healed. It isn't magic that's in the objects, but people desired contact with the divine, and by faith they were coming to God who was being ministered through the instruments of Peter and Paul. We are all called to be instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. We who truly have the Lord with us are called to go into the world to minister the gospel in word and deed into every aspect of life and existence. And there are some who will respond by faith as those who ache for the overshadowing from the Holy Spirit. There are simply some who want the blessing of God, but not God, and they will not respond to the offer of the gospel. But we are called to minister the gospel to everyone and let God call whom he will. So our ministry of the gospel does not include miraculous healings and driving out the evil spirits as was seen in this time because this was part of the inauguration period of the kingdom of Christ. When Jesus first came and then following his ascension, this early ministry of the church established Christ's kingdom reign. That inauguration period ended in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem so that we now live in the continuation period, the gospel age as we continue the building of the kingdom, called to go into the world with the message of Christ for salvation and the redeeming and restoration of all things in anticipation of Christ's return where he ultimately consummates his kingdom reign. And so we see that the church was highly regarded by the people and yet persecuted by the Sanhedrin, the political leaders. And so you got to ask the question, what's their problem, right? What's their problem with the church? Well, three things. First, the name of Jesus. The leaders are bothered that the preaching of the apostles and the miracles are being done in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom they had crucified. Verse 28 records them saying, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. And then the second thing that bothers them is the resurrection. The leaders were frustrated that the preaching of Jesus involved his resurrection. Verse 17 reminds us that it is the Sadducees 
who were the leaders of this persecution. And we remember that the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. They're sad, you see, right? And so to suggest that the resurrection is true is an attack on their knowledge of the scriptures and their theological position. And even more than that, if the resurrection was true, then Jesus was truly the Messiah and they couldn't have that. And so they have a problem with the name of Jesus and the resurrection and then jealousy. Verse 17 tells us straight up the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Now, what are they jealous about? They're jealous that Jesus' name, rather than their name, is being proclaimed. They're jealous that the people are listening to the apostles rather than listening to them. People, naturally, want to make a name for themselves and to be followed. From politicians to celebrities, and I suppose to all of us, checking to see how many followers we have on social media and how many people liked our latest post. Jealousy is an ugly thing, and it is everywhere. Now, something comical is described next. First, we see that the Sadducees throw the apostles in jail, and that they have the power to do this shows us that this is not just a spat between two rival factions of the same religion. The Sadducees, and as we see the whole Sanhedrin, consisting of the high priests, the scribes, the elders, prominent leaders from various groups, many of them named back in chapter 4, they really are indicative of the unbelieving world. Well, having put the apostles in prison, the leaders are standing around the, the council chamber, as it were, and they call for the apostles to be brought in. And it's reported that the apostles aren't there. Verse 23, we found the jail securely locked, guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Verse 24 describes the captain of the temple guard, the chief priests, as puzzled. You think? <laughs> They're thinking to themselves, oh, now what are we going to do? How are we going to find these guys? And then someone comes in and says, hey, look, <laughs> they're right out there. The men you put in jail, standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. Wait, what? What they don't know is that during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors and brought them out. We're going to see something similar happen in chapter 12. Ironically, the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, also don't believe in angels. They're kind of having a bad day. How the angel opens the door without the guards knowing it is part of the miracle of the release. The angel tells them to go right back out in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. And so this isn't a daring escape where the angel says, quick, run for your lives, go and hide. God is showing his mighty power in broad daylight. And so here it comes. The Sanhedrin call for the apostles to be brought in, but can no longer use force and intimidation because of what God has already done. They want to stone the apostles, but they're now afraid that if they use force, the people are going to want to stone them. So they've got to grin and bear it and through fake smiling teeth say to the apostles, hi, can you come and meet with us if you please? In verse 28, the high priest summarizes the point. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Well, actually, at the trial of Jesus, this was the very thing they had willingly taken upon themselves. Pontius Pilate had said to them, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. And they had replied, 
Let his blood be on us and on our children. Well, now it was. The rulers did not have to be made guilty because they already were. They were guilty of murdering the Son of God and did not like the consequences at all. All of us who have come to saving faith have recognized that we were guilty. We were born in sin and we rebelled against God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all guilty and we confessed our guilt to God and received his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter says in response in verses 30 to 32. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Notice that Peter's response is not to encourage the Sanhedrin to obey the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Neither does Peter exhort the Sanhedrin to obey the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Peter doesn't wax on with the ethical statements from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. What Peter does is to present the facts of the gospel. Christ's crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and the witness of the people. Why did the apostles present the gospel facts instead of ethical teaching? Because they know what we know, that a person must first come to Jesus Christ as Savior before he or she can take on the burden of his teachings. We must first have new life within us before we can begin to go out and live that new life. And so to unbelievers, we first share the good news of the gospel, that there is forgiveness of sin, that there is atonement for your guilt, that there is covering for your shame. Repent of yourself and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, Hearts regenerated embrace Christ and the spirit takes up residence in our very hearts and we are enabled to live the new life. We begin to embrace God's commands as good and not a burden. We're glad to have Jesus as Savior also now as Lord of our lives. And it would be great if what took place was faith among the Sanhedrin. If they were to hear the good news and embrace their guilt and embrace the offer of forgiveness and surrender to Christ. But the opposite is what happens. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. If you have ever shared the gospel with someone and not had them respond favorably, you are in good company. The apostle Peter shared the good news, and the response was that they wanted to kill him. It's curious that the proclamation of Jesus brings two widely different responses. In fact, John Wesley would ask two questions of preachers that he had sent on preaching assignments. He would ask, did anyone get saved? Did anyone get mad? And if the answer was no to both those questions, he would wonder if they'd even preached the gospel. 
Our world says that they want free and open debate. But as soon as you mention Jesus, anger is what comes out. What we see in the world is something I suppose we too often see in ourselves. If we are very angry about something, especially in religion, it's probably a sign that we are on the wrong track. Certainly there is a righteous anger. Jesus displayed righteous anger. God's wrath is righteous. But most of the time, our anger is not righteous. Sometimes it may start out as a form of righteous anger. And we recall that the scriptures say, in your anger, do not sin. Or more literally, be angry and do not sin. I have certainly seen in myself too many times when I failed to do this. And it's why we're glad for the voice of Gamaliel at this juncture. Later, we're going to find out that the Apostle Paul studied under Gamaliel. In verse 34, he speaks and basically says, before you kill these men, stop and consider what you'll be doing. And he goes on to recall two people, Thutis and Judas the Galilean, who had both appeared with claims to be someone important and had many who rallied to their side, but ultimately they were killed and their followers were dispersed. Uh, Two references to those guys are found nowhere in scripture and ancient historical accounts are sketchy at best in the details, but they were clearly known to the people at that time. And so Gamaliel suggests in verse 38, therefore in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men you will only find yourselves fighting against God. They are followers of Jesus. Jesus has been killed. Therefore, the followers will disperse if this is of human origin. However, if this is truly from God, then you won't be able to stop them. We remember what we saw in 2 Chronicles 13 earlier. Men, don't fight against the Lord. You will not be successful. And that is again the case here. Now, on the one hand, we'd like to affirm Gamaliel as a wise, gracious, and understanding man. His advice is good, worldly advice, but it doesn't go far enough. What he should have added is this. And since we are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of this nation, we ought to investigate the matter and see if it's true. If it isn't, then it will run its course. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we are wrong. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is the son of God. His death really was a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. We cannot be neutral and must believe in him and become his witnesses just as these men are. But, of course, that's not what he said. And it's not what the Sanhedrin do. However, the truth has been proved, hasn't it? It did not just run its course like things of human origin. Believers in Jesus Christ have continually multiplied throughout the ages and the nations. And so we see this is not an activity of human origin, but the activities of divine origin. 2,000 years later, we are still here. In fact, it is at this point that Luke has lost count of the size of the church. It's no longer the 120 of chapter 1 or the 3,000 of chapter 2 or even the 5,000 of chapter 4. Acts 5 verse 14 says, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. It's a number that cannot even be counted at this point in time. 
the church hasn't just grown, it has multiplied because the activity is of divine origin. Today, the witnesses of Jesus Christ are no longer even contained to Jerusalem or even to Judea and Samaria, but have gone to the ends of the earth. Today, we live in an unprecedented age in which technology has allowed the proclamation of God to go into some of the most resistant areas of the world. Missionaries went to the remotest areas and now to the most resistant areas. While in the West, we have seen less who call themselves Christians, in the East and the Far East and even the Middle East, the number of those who have placed their faith in Christ is exponentially growing. It's even speculated that Africa will soon become the center of Christianity. And wouldn't it be just like God to bring all things back full circle? And so our passage concludes. Verses 41 and 42, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And so may we never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. May we never stop ministering this good news even when we get more negative responses than positive responses. May we never stop sharing Jesus in word and deed that even the world may see that it is genuine, different, and good. And may we never stop the activities of divine origin and rejoice together in the building of Christ's kingdom in every nation, tribe, and tongue. Indeed, may the truth set us free. Amen.